If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention to the Gospel of Matthew, the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to be looking at two verses of Scripture, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And the title of the message is The Two Ways of Life. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The words of Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. As we come to these two verses of scripture, we are nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount beginning with Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And, and this is somewhat of, a, of an invitation from the Lord to the people who had been listening to him. You may recall last Sunday when we looked at verse 12, I shared with you that verse 12 is somewhat of a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's just like taking chapters 5 and 6 and the first part of chapter 7 and summarizing it all up into this one, condensing it into one statement, what is what we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. That would be, as he says, the summary of the law and the prophets, which was a way of referring to all of the Old Testament teachings, the Ten Commandments and the prophecies of all of the great prophets and so forth, all of it summarized plus what he had said in what is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's all summarized. He's come to the end of his sermon. But now he is seeking to give an invitation. Enter into the narrow way, he says. I thought that somewhat strange because the people to whom he was addressing were already his disciples. If you would go back to the fifth chapter of Matthew in the first two verses, you'll find where our Lord went to the side of a mountain and his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and began teaching them. So on the surface and at first it seems kind of strange that now he would turn to his disciples who were already his, his disciples and followers and say to them, enter into the straight gate. But then it suddenly dawned on me that there were perhaps other people than just his disciples, uh, the 12 apostles or others, who would have been gathered on that mountainside too. Uh, again, you go back to chapter five and the first two verses and it says that he was on the side of a mountain that his disciples followed him there and he taught them. But in my mind, I visualized that it was a mixed crowd there were those who were genuine followers and disciples, but there were others there who, if you please, were eavesdropping on what the master had to say. I compare it somewhat to our congregation here today or any Sunday that we gather here to worship. Most of us are the disciples of the Lord. We love Jesus. We've been saved. Uh, uh, we follow him with the aid and leadership of the Holy Spirit, but there may be and probably are many times when we gather others who are not followers 
or there may be even those who think that they are followers of Christ, but in reality have never had a genuine conversion experience. And so they are disciples of the Lord in word only. You remember Jesus said that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father. And so many times we make the mistake, especially uh, us preachers, uh, we preachers, we, we, we tend to give the impression that it's real easy to be a Christian. All you got to do is confess your sins and trust Jesus and you got it made. Well, that's true and to a certain extent. But there's a price that you must pay to be a follower of Christ. It will cost you everything to be a follower of Christ. You will remember in the sixth chapter of John's gospel, our Lord gave the discord about his, his being the bread of life. He said, you will eat the bread here on this earth, but you'll hunger again. But if you'll eat the bread that I give to you, you'll never hunger again. You'll never thirst again because I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. And boy, when they heard that, a large percentage of the crowd walked away from Jesus to follow him no more. You see, they entered the course, but they dropped out of school. And, and Jesus then turned to his disciples and said, are, are you also going to turn away? And you remember it was Simon Peter said, well, Lord, to whom else are we going to go? We believe that you're the son of God. You're the one who has the words of life. There's nobody else we have to turn to. No, we're not turning away. But most of them did. And we sit here this morning and I look at our crowd, what we have about 400 or 450 or so people who are here today. And I don't know how many people are in other churches throughout our community, but when you compare the number of people who are attending church today to the total population of our city and the, the greater metropolitan area of Nacogdoches, uh, we're just very few in number. The vast majority of the people in this city and in our nation and in the world are not followers of Jesus Christ. And so our Lord says, enter the gate. Because uh, the straight gate, because wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go that way, but straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and very, very few enter in. And so our Lord was challenging those who were listening to him to enter that gate if you have not already done so and enroll as a disciple of mine and follow me. Uh, on another occasion, he put it this way, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, follow me. So today we're going to be looking at this idea of there being two ways, two ways of life. And uh, the, the four major ideas that are printed for you on your outline, a very simple outline, two gates, two ways, two groups, and two destinations. So let's begin by looking at the two gates. Look at it in verse 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. And then in verse 14, for the great is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. So there is a broad gate, a wide gate, and then there's a, a narrow gate. And so in the wide gate, he says, enter, there are many who enter the wide gate. 
Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And so this gate is wide. It's easy to enter into the wide gate. There are no restrictions. And there are, there's plenty of room for everybody in, as they go to the inner gate. No limit to the luggage that you can take. The vast majority of the people of the world stay on this road and love it. We need leave nothing behind, not even our sins. You don't need to repent to enter the straight gate or the, or the wide gate, I should say. It has very few rules, few requirements, and few restrictions. It is an inclusive road and gate. The homosexuals travel this way. The adulterer travels this way. The pornographer travels this way. The drunkard travels this road. And the fornicator travels this road. It is an indulgent road. Anything goes and everyone is welcome. Sin is tolerated. Truth is moderated. Acceptance is elevated. It is the road most people travel. This is the road for people who believe in anything or believe in nothing at all. They believe that one religion is just as good as another religion. They believe that all roads lead to God and eventually we are going to wind up in the same place and we'll all be together forever. There's no such thing as hell. So it's a wide gate, a wide gate. I remember uh, several years ago, back in the, the middle 90s, I went to Lufkin for a one-day conference and Josh McDowell was the, um, uh, the speaker uh, for that day. He's the Christian apologist. And I never will forget, that was the first time, I guess, the Holy Spirit really impressed on me uh, that the thing that you and I as Christians have to deal with even to this very day, and I guess will from now on, and that is the word tolerance. He said that's the key word for our culture for who knows how long, probably forever from now on, tolerate. And the idea of that is that you must tolerate everything and everybody in all philosophies that nobody's wrong, there's no absolutes, nobody's right, nobody's wrong. It's just you believe what you want to believe and, and uh, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter. And the one thing that the world will not stand for is for a Christian to be intolerant of all that. For me to stand here and say to you, there are not many ways to heaven, only one. You stand up in a classroom in some of our state schools and say that and you'll be laughed out of the room. You will be ridiculed and mocked and said, well, how narrow-minded and what a bigot you are to say that there's only one way to heaven. And not very many people are going. You stand up and say to the world that it's wrong, it's a sin to be a homosexual, it's wrong and it's a sin to be an adulterer or a drunkard or a drug addict or a drug peddler. On the list is on and on and on and on. We are required by our society and by the world to tolerate and accept anything and everything and all kinds of life's ways of living. And if you're not, then you're crazy. You're a fool. That is the wide gate, the wide gate. The narrow gate is narrow. The word narrow can also mean small. It's a very small gate. The other one's very big, very broad. But the narrow gate is very small, very narrow. The Greek word for narrow here, or small, is the word that means to groan because of being under tremendous pressure. I remember several years ago when we were privileged to go to Israel, we went to one day to uh, the uh, Church of the Nativity. 
The, uh, the entrance to the church of the nativity was at one time a regular sized door. But the problem was that through the centuries during the crusades and so forth, uh, people who would invade Jerusalem and Bethlehem and they would come to the church of the nativity, they wouldn't bother to get off their horses. They would just stay on their horses and they would ride through the door and, and, um, and, and do whatever they wanted to do in then, then that church. And so to keep that from happening, they began to, to block up the entrance to the church of the nativity. And to this day, if you've never been there, you can look it up on the internet and see a picture of it. The entrance to the church of the nativity is only very high. And you have to stoop over and bend over to get into it. In other words, you've got to humiliate yourself. You've got to look small. And I think that's what the Lord is saying to us. That, that didn't exist in the days of our Lord. It does. That, that is the church of the nativity and the, uh, and, the, and the small. But just a reminder that he said, you must deny yourself. You must be dead to yourself. You must deny all worldly goods and so forth and follow me. And that is a very narrow approach to life. It's very small. And you have to stoop to get into it. You have to die to self and say no to self in order to enter. And there are very few who do it. The boundaries are clearly marked. It is a word that was used to represent a constriction. The Lord here paints a picture of a tiny gate that is easily overlooked. You have to search for it. The road is also very narrow. It never broadens no matter how far or how long you travel. It doesn't widen. It doesn't broaden. It remains straight and narrow. And you can't bring just any baggage, any luggage through this gate. You've got to leave it behind. The entry is also a turnpike. It has to be entered one by one. There's no such thing as mass conversion. Some in their own conceit are too big to enter. The master said, deny yourself, humble yourself, but they'll have no such thing. This gate demands that we should humble ourselves and repent and, 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 and surrender to Christ. There are several examples of this. Naaman in the Old Testament. You remember Naaman came down with leprosy. And he, I guess in whatever remedies were available in those days, he tried everything there was and and couldn't, couldn't be healed. And there was a little servant girl who said, well, I know a man who, who, who can bring healing to you. He's a prophet. And so word was, uh, was sent. And so Naaman went to see him. And, and, and the message that, uh, uh, that was sent out to him was, uh, you need to go down to the River Jordan and, and dunk yourself in the River Jordan seven times. And Naaman became outraged. He just, he could not believe his ears. To have to go down and wash in a dirty, muddy, despised river called Jordan that is beneath my dignity. I am a great man. I'm a great leader. And you wanted me to go duck myself in seven times in the muddy river Jordan? Why, if you'd tell me to go do something else, great, that I could receive recognition and acknowledgement. I'll be glad to do that. In fact, the little servant girl said to him, well, you know, if, if the prophet had said to you, you know, give all of your money to some charitable institution or, or build some cathedral or do something great, well, you wouldn't have hesitated to do that. But to humble yourself, to do that beneath your dignity, 
There was another man in the New Testament. We refer to him as the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus one day and falling at the feet of Jesus, he said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commandments, keep them. He said, well, ever since I was just a child, I kept the, I kept the commandments. But Jesus, looking in the heart, as he always does, said, realizing that there was a commitment that he had made, but it wasn't to God or to him, it was to his wealth. And so he said, take all of your possessions and sell it, give the money to the poor, come take up your cross and follow me. And the Bible says that he went away very discouraged and very sad because he was a very wealthy man. That's why we call him the rich young ruler. And Jesus turned to his disciples and they asked him, is it difficult for rich people to get into heaven? And Jesus said, no, it's just very difficult because the wealthy has the temptation that they depend upon their wealth for their salvation and their entrance to heaven and their approval of God. And your wealth has nothing at all to do with your salvation. And so there were those who refused to follow. Now, now there, the Bible is filled with references where Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He is the door. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. In John chapter 10, verses 1, 7, and 9, Jesus two or three different times says that he was the door. He said, truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the door unto the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. I am the door of the sheep. I am the door, he says. And then in John 7, uh, 14 and verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Just like those words up there say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I didn't say that, Jesus did. Jesus was saying the way to heaven, the way to eternal life is very straight and is very narrow and very few people follow him. Peter said, speaking to the crowd, there's no salvation in anyone else other than the name of Jesus. The only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Not many names, not many ways, not many truths, only one, one. It's narrow and it's small and you must be willing to follow. That's the gate. But notice not only the two gates, but notice the two ways. Just as the two gates are narrow and, and, and broad, likewise the ways. When you enter the broad gate, then you're going to follow the broad way. The, the word broad means spacious and roomy. And some manuscripts combine their images to mean wide and easy. Oh, it's easy to go through the wide gate. You don't have to pay a fee. It doesn't cost you anything. There's plenty of room. The road of tolerance and permissiveness, it has no curbs, no boundaries, no kind of restrict requirements and so forth. It's, it's there and you can walk through it. Anybody and many do. But then there's the narrow way or the difficult way. As we said, the word difficult or narrow means hard. What did Jesus mean when he said it's difficult? Well, I'm not going to say something to you that's, uh, I want to say something to you that sounds contradictory. You don't have to pay anything for salvation. You don't. It's free. But salvation will cost you everything. Sounds contradictory, does it? It doesn't cost you a thing, and yet it costs you everything. You see, the reason few people enter the gate is not because the gate is too small, but people are too big. And I'm not talking about weight, okay? 
Jesus said that in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you must become as a little child. He put a little child there and he said, you want to get saved? You want to go to heaven? You got to be like a little child. He's not talking about size. He's talking about mentality. Children are trusting. They are. They're sweet and kind and loving and trusting. And, and Jesus said, that's what you need to be too. You need to be little and kind and sweet and trusting in your attitude about salvation. So it's narrow. You may remember in, in the Old Testament, the character of Enoch. He was one of two people who never died. He, he walked with God and was not because God took him. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5, this is what the Bible says. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained this witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, you might think that's, that's a great commendable statement to make about a person, that before God took him up into heaven, he, he pleased the Lord. But if you go to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, you'll discover the kind of society and culture in which Enoch lived. Listen to this. Well, not, not the book of Hebrews, the book of Jude, excuse me, the book of Jude. It only has one chapter, but verses 14 and 15 in the book of Jude describes the society and the culture in which Enoch lived. Listen to this. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they had done in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners had been spoken against God. So he uses the term ungodly, 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 ungodly four times. So Enoch lived in a society of people, evidently he had been the only one who pleased God and was taken out of the earth, all the rest of them classified by the term ungodly. And you know, every day as we see what's going on in the world today, and especially in America, we're becoming more and more an ungodly nation. Removing his name from everything that we can, erase it. Get as far away from God and narrow-mindedness and intolerance as we can. And yet Enoch lived in a time when everybody else was ungodly, but he lived a lifestyle, one of how many hundreds or thousands of millions of people who were going and living on that day he was the only one who pleased God. It's a narrow way, and it is a straight way. I'm reminded of the story of John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim, in Pilgrim's Progress, as, as he was on his way to the holy city, he doesn't go very far un, un, until he falls into what's called the slough of despondency. And uh, he has a companion with him by the name of Pliable. Pliable was a guy, he was just, he could, he, he would just do anything. He, he'd just go with the crowd. You know, he, 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 I don't want you to go by yourself. I'll go with you. I'll go with you. Well, Pliable fell into the slew of despondency with him. And uh, they began to sink there. And the more they struggle, kind of like quicksand, the more you move and the more you struggle, the deeper you go. But finally, Pliable works his way over to the edge of the slough and he's able to pull himself out. 
And when he gets out, he just kind of shakes the scum and mud and everything off of himself. And he looks at uh, Pilgrim and he says, if I'd have known it was going to be like this, I would have started out with you in the first place. He didn't even stop to help Pilgrim get out. He just walked away. Just walked away. A lot of people do that. You see, you need to understand, yet, yes, becoming a Christian does involve just the simple matter of trusting Jesus and repenting of your sins. But you have to also realize that you are entering in a spiritual warfare. And there's a battle raging, and you've got an enemy, and his name is Satan. And if you are not genuine in your walk with God and if you're not genuine in your commitment to the Lord and you get into the middle of a spiritual battle and you're the first thing you're going to do, you're going to drop your armor and you're going to flee. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, he says, if you follow me, you've got to hate your family. Now, wait a minute, preacher. That's what he said. Now, I don't think he meant literally hate them. I'm just thinking that, that in comparison to your commitment to Jesus and your commitment to other people, even your family, Jesus must come first. And you see, if you put Jesus first in your life, then you're going to be the best husband in the world and the best wife in the world and the best parent in the world and the best child in the world. Because family is not first. You're not first. Jesus is first. And there are very few people who live that way. We are self-centered people. We're nartistic. And, and we put self on the throne instead of Jesus. And Jesus is saying to us, I'm not going to sit in the back seat for anybody. I've got to be at the steering wheel. And I've got to control and I've got to be the driver if you follow me. Uh, Jesus said, take up your cross. Well, what, what does taking up your, well, what does the cross mean? It means death. A cross didn't mean life. People died on a cross. Jesus died on a cross. And to take up your cross and to follow Jesus means that you die to self. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, yet I live not I, but the Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who lives in me. That's not easy to do, folks. It's difficult. Jesus said, how many of you, if you were going to build something, you're going to build a tower? You just don't decide I'm going to build a tower and go out here and do it. No, you first of all, you sit down and you draw up a blueprint exactly what you want. Then you kind of figure out how much is it going to cost to do that. And then you check your bank account and say, do I have enough money to do this? Before you ever get started. Because if you start to build something and you haven't been smart enough to sit down and see what it's going to cost you, and you get halfway through of building it and all of a sudden you run out of money, people drive by and they just laugh and say, well, here's a fool. He didn't have enough sense to sit down and think how much it's going to cost him to build that. Jesus said, you need to count the cost before you follow. How many of you kings, he said, you go out to war and you're coming up against another king and another nation and boy, they're more, more populated than your kingdom is and they're more powerful militarily than your kingdom is and so what do you do? Well, you send out a, an ambassador. You try to reach an agreement to try to avoid a battle like that. Try to compromise, come up with a peace agreement. You sit down and count the cost, he said. 
Likewise, he says, you cannot be my disciple if you're not willing to deny self and take up your cross and follow me. So it's difficult. It's a difficult way. And you better be serious about following it. Two groups, two gates, two ways, two groups. The many and the few. There are many who enter through the wide gate. The broad and the easy way is a busy thoroughfare thronged by pedestrians of every kind. It shock you to know who are included in this crowd, the crowd of many. The atheist, the agnostic, the humanist, the communist, the Jews, the Gentiles, the blacks, the whites, the tan, the brown, they're all on this road. But there are also other people on this road that may surprise you. Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalians, Catholics, Catholics, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Mormons, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims. Anyone who has never been born again and accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is on this road. When the Lord meets up with you, he's not going to say, well, what Baptist church did you belong to? He'll ask you what you did with Jesus, my son, who died on the cross to save you. The few, well, there are few who find it. The reason why there are only a few that go through the narrow gate is because the road is so hard to follow. It's not because there isn't enough room. <laughs> hey, there's plenty of room. You remember the song? We, there's room at the cross for you. Always room for one more. Because God's grace has no limits. And God's heaven has no boundaries. And the only reason why there are so few people is because only relatively few people are willing to make the decision to totally follow Jesus. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The nation of Israel refused to enter into the promised land. The world unanimously crucified Jesus and five out of six people in the world today have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So through this uh, gate and in this way, you follow the way to destruction. He says, broad is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. In 1999, the State Farm Insurance Company rated the most dangerous intersection for accidents in the United States. They determined that the most dangerous intersection in America was the corner of Beltline Road and Midway Road in Addison, Texas, a suburb of, Texas, of Dallas. At this one intersection, in one year, there were 263 crashes that averages out to five wrecks every week at that one intersection. Now that indeed is a dangerous intersection. The most dangerous intersection in the universe, however, is where Religion Avenue intersects with Good Works Boulevard. Because the very vast majority of this world believes that one or the other or both is all that's necessary in order for you to go to heaven. Well, Jesus was giving us a warning, just as I'm giving us a warning to right now. You may be at the intersection of Religion Avenue and Good Works Boulevard, and you may have convinced yourself that you're going to heaven, that you're a pretty good old guy. But if you're not on the road marked grace, driving in a car called faith, driven by Jesus Christ, you're on the wrong road and you're headed away from God. An agnostic went into a 
he got an appointment with a pastor and he walked into the pastor's office and he said, I've got a question I want to ask you. And the pastor said, well, what is? And he said, where is hell? Where is hell located? The pastor, without hesitation, said, it's at the road, at the end of the road of a Christless life. That's where hell is. At the end of the road of a Christless life. The Bible says there is a way which seems right to man, but the end thereof is the way of death. The way to life is small. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son has not life. Destination, either hell or heaven. To capitulate again, according to Jesus, only two ways, that's all. Hard way and the easy way. There's not a middle road, folks. There's no middle road. Entered by two gates, broad and narrow. There's not another gate. Trodden by two groups of people, the large and the small, there's no neutral group. You can't sit on the fence here, folks, and say, well, I just won't decide. It ends in two destinations, destruction and life, and there's no third alternative, none whatsoever. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. You know, a gate is meant to be opened. You can see a gate and never enter you got to open it. you got to open it. You've got to make a commitment. You've got to decide what are you going to do. I read about a man who wrote in his will that when he died, all of his, his property at a farm, all of his acreage would be given to the devil. <laughs> so they had a, had a problem when, when, he, when he died. Well, how do you give something to the devil? You will it to the devil. Well, finally, after weeks of deliberation, the court decided that the best way to carry out the farmer's wishes was to permit the weeds and the briars to take over the farmland, to allow the house and the barn to remain unpainted and rot and to let the soil erode and wash away. The court declared in its ruling the best way to let the devil have possession of anything is to do nothing. To do nothing. I'll just take my chances. Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. And if anyone tries to climb into the fold by any other means, he is a thief and a robber. I am the way and the truth and the life. Go back with me for just a moment at the beginning of the sermon. Here's Jesus on the side of the mountain, his genuine followers right before him, but there's this extra crowd. And I, I visualize in my mind Jesus taking his eyes off of his, his close, intimate followers, intimate followers and, and he looks up to the broad group and he says, enter the gate. He was the gate. You're looking for the narrow gate? You're looking for the small way. You're looking for the hard way. Jesus was standing there. He said, I am the way. I am the gate. Follow me. Follow me. There's a decision that awaits all people. There are two gates. Which one have you entered? Or which one will you enter? There are two ways. Which way will you travel? Or which way are you traveling? 
There are two groups of people, the many and the few. In which group are you? And there are two destinations, heaven or hell. Which way are you headed? Where are you gonna end up? Jesus said, enter the straight and the narrow way. It leads to life. Let's bow together. What a challenge that's wrapped up in that very simple invitation, Lord, that you extended to those who were on the side of that mountain. But that invitation hasn't changed throughout the centuries. In fact, since the beginning of time, it has always been the only way to life. And that is through you. Because, Lord, you have always existed. You were the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And God the Father, nor God the Son, nor God the Holy Spirit ever planned any other way for our salvation to be accomplished than through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the only unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. And so, Jesus, we thank you and praise you for being willing to come into this world to become one of us, to die on the cross and become sin for us that we might be saved. And Holy Spirit, for your transplanting the righteousness of Jesus into our hearts and our lives. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening the eyes of our souls and helping us to see what the straight and narrow way and gate is. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of entering into that. We pray now for this time of invitation where again, the words of Jesus resound. To anyone who's here today and who's never entered in, enter the straight and the narrow way that leads to life. Lead us, O Lord, to do your will and to bring honor and glory to you and salvation to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if God leads you to come today, I'll be here at the front.